How do we grow? What takes us from simply reading and listening to moving and doing? Into a roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty kind of walk, driven by a desire to grow in grace and humility, digging in faith and on good soil, implanting his word in our hearts, waking up to life on the other side, where peace-loving wisdom resides, persevering through trials and temptation, through death and destruction, giving life-breathing water through action and deed, letting it soak in and take deep root in every aspect. That kind of doing changes us. It leads us into true faith, true faith that produces good fruit and changes who we are in Christ, driving us to sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness, to lead with love and give to others generously with mercy, causing us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Well, it's good to have you here on this great day as we continue in our series, Doers, looking at the book of James. Those of you here in Bellingham, so glad that you're here. Those of you joining us in Skagit with uh, Pastor Brian down there, glad that you're with us uh, again today, as well as those at the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton and those of you watching the live stream right now from wherever you are in the world. Good to have you with us. As uh, I've said uh, for several weeks, I'll say again, I hope that in this series and in these uh, days this fall, you have been reading the book of James for yourself, studying it it, looking into it. I, I, there is so much more in this book than we're able to even come close to, to hitting on on the weekend services. In our small group this last week, we spent the entire time with people just sharing insights, questions, things that bothered them, things that impacted them. And it was an incredible um, discussion about some of the other pieces of, of James that we haven't talked about in the weekend service. And as we got done with that, I was thinking at the end of our small group, it was a wonderful time wrapped up with, with prayer and, and leaving. If James himself would have been in our living room, in our small group, which would have been really cool, but it didn't happen. But if he would have been there, as people were leaving, I think he would have said, hey, great discussion tonight, but what are you going to do with it? Because that's kind of his whole theme. What we've looked at every week is this, this theme verse where we get our, our title for the series out of James 1.22. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's not just the information, but it's taking that information and assimilating it so that there's transformation in our life and in our world. Um, some of you are aware that this last week, uh, Eugene Peterson uh, passed away, went to be with the Lord. Some of you don't know who I'm talking about. Eugene Peterson was a pastor. Um, he was also an author, a great theologian. He was a seminary professor. Um, and maybe uh, some of you might have read the message paraphrase of the Bible. Eugene Peterson uh, penned that. Uh, he's also well known for a, a, a younger generation of a, an interview he did with Bono. But he, he went to be with the Lord this week. He referenced this in such a profound way that it's not just the information of God's word, but assimilating it into our lives and then it's transformation. He said this in one of his books, Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. It's not just for here. We assimilate it, take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, of cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism, and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. That it's not just hearing and knowing the truth. It's not just believing the right things. It's what do those things do? How are they transformed in our lives so that we can make a difference in our world? 
So we've been looking at this book of James, written by James, the brother of Jesus, also a great leader in the early church, the first bishop in the, uh, Jeru- in the church in Jerusalem. And as we saw last week, the apostle Paul referred to him as one of the pillars, one of the three pillars of the early church. There was James, there was Peter, and there was John. I mentioned last week that we would talk a little bit about the relationship between James and Paul because I think there's some significance, especially with what we're going to be covering today out of James chapter 2. One of the things that the Apostle Paul and James had in common is that neither of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah while Jesus was here doing his ministry. Both of them, their understanding of that, their discovery of that happened after the resurrection. After Jesus came back from the dead, he appeared to James, and James was convinced Jesus is not just my brother, he is the Lord of all, he is the Messiah, and later, the, uh, uh, Saul of Tarsus was actually a Pharisee who was trying to eradicate the followers of Jesus from the p- face of the planet. He was going around arresting them, beating them, even killing them. And as he's on his way to Damascus, he's knocked off his donkey by a bright light. He meets Jesus, and his life is forever changed. After that encounter with Jesus, he goes to Damascus. He spends some years in Arabia, and there's this big void of what happened there. Some believe that Jesus and he met together. We don't know all that. He came back to Damascus, and then he decided to go to Jerusalem. Up to this point, he's kind of been going rogue, but he's following Jesus, and he's telling, convincing people to follow Jesus that he is the Messiah. You can imagine the people who have heard of this man, Saul, now called Paul, are afraid of him. So the people, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem are saying, we don't want him here. He arrests people. He beat up my husband. You know, he arrested my wife. He killed my uncle. No way. So a guy named Barnabas, the name Barnabas literally means son of encouragement, which is such a cool name. Barnabas speaks up and says, no, guys, guys, I'm telling you, his life has changed. Jesus has made a dramatic difference in this man's life. And so he comes to Jerusalem, and Paul actually refers to this in Galatians when he said, after three years, he's been in Arabia and Damascus, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. That is two weeks I wish I could have been a part of. How cool would that have been? That Peter's probably just telling all the stories that have happened in the last three years of Jesus' ministry here on, on earth. And Saul's talking about what he's learned and how he's been transformed. And they talk. Not only that, but he said, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So Paul and James are meeting, and you can imagine again that conversation. You didn't believe him either. No, I didn't believe him either. Yeah, but he, he was your brother. Yeah, but you beat up his, you know. So anyway, they had this conversation. And it's at that time where uh, James and Peter and John give the right hand of fellowship to Paul and say, why don't you take the gospel to the Gentiles? Take the truth of Jesus to the Gentiles, which is hilarious to me because Saul, as a Pharisee, would have spent his entire life praying this prayer, Lord, I am thankful that you did not create me a Gentile. It was a prayer that was commonly prayed with Jewish men, thankful that you did not create me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. It was a common prayer for, Gent- for, Gentile- for Jewish men. And so Paul has prayed this his whole life, and Jesus said, I tell you what, why don't you go tell the Gentiles about me? And so he goes, away he goes, and for the next 10 years, he's back in Tarsus, and then he goes on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And what's amazing is, the Gentile, Gentile people respond to the good news about Jesus and they become followers of Jesus and they experience his grace and his forgiveness and they experience the Holy Spirit. There's a bit of a controversy, however, 
as these Gentile believers are coming into the church, the Jewish believers are saying, welcome to the club. The Jewish men are saying, there is one little sign of this fraternity that we have, and it's not a secret handshake. It entails a little surgery called circumcision. And the Gentile men are going, oh, well, let's think about this a little bit more. Couldn't we do like tattoos or matching hoodies, anything? And so there's a, a, a sharp dispute, uh, no pun intended, a sharp dispute entailed. And so because they couldn't get this settled, Paul and Barnabas come back to Jerusalem to the headquarters and say, we got to figure this thing out. You can read all this on your own in uh, Acts 15. So Paul and Barnabas come back, and there are many Pharisees who have now become followers after Jesus. And these Pharisees said, absolutely they need to be circumcised. Not only do they need to be circumcised, but they need to follow the laws of Moses. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? It's Ten Commandments. No, 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 no. The laws of Moses, the Pentateuch, had 613 laws, all kinds of laws. And the Pharisees are saying, they have to come in line, they have to basically become Jewish uh, outwardly and inwardly and follow all these laws. Peter speaks up, which is no surprise, he always speaks up. Peter speaks up and says, wait, 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 brothers, you Jewish brothers, this yoke of law, this heavy burden of the law, our forefathers didn't keep it. We don't even keep it. Why would we want to put that kind of burden on these people? And then Paul and Barnabas speak up, and everyone's just caught up in this, this awe as they begin to tell how the Gentiles have heard the message of Jesus, they've been transformed, the Holy Spirit, they're all listening. And James, you see his authority in the early church, James is just taking it all in. He's listening to Paul and Barnabas, he's listening to the Pharisees, he's listening to Peter, he's taking it all in, and he's assimilating all this information, realizing he has to make a very difficult leadership decision here, not just leadership, but theological decision that's gonna have long-lasting ripple effects and ramifications for a lot of people. So he's taking all this in, he hears all this information, and then he speaks up and it's like he has the final word. And in Acts 15, James said this, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. To which there was a collective sigh of relief amongst the Gentile men. And on one voice, they all shouted, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> he said, here's what we were going to ask for these Gentiles. A few things. One, that they would not eat food that has been polluted by idols. Like, get away from the idolatry. All this idol worship that's a part of your culture, walk away from that. One, that they would abstain from sexual immorality, that they would honor God with their bodies and their sexuality the way that God has created and ordained them to live sexually pure lives. That they would not eat animals that have been strangled and not drink blood. Other than that, they're good. And so away they go. So at this point, James and Paul, again, they're like, man, things are great. This is Paul saying, that's what I was hoping you would say, something along that lines. And away he goes. Paul goes on his second missionary journey. He goes on his third missionary journey. And in this time, he's planting these churches all over Asia Minor, all over what today we call Turkey, Greece, um, and, and, um, and that whole area in there. And he writes these letters to these churches. And there are times when it seems that there's a contradiction, a, a conflict in what Paul says in his letters and what James said in his letters. And, and maybe the one that's most controversial has to do with this faith works tension. 
the faith works or faith in deeds or faith in obedience tension. And that's what I want us to focus our attention on today. We're going to be looking at the last half of, of James chapter 2. Let me just say right up front, going into this weekend, I've been really, really concerned that we don't get, that I, we, that I don't get too deep into the theological weeds, that I don't set up straw men to knock them over, that I don't muddy up the waters just so that I can clear them up, that I don't answer questions that you're not asking. But I think there's some of the stuff that we're gonna talk about, and it's real heavy on the theology side today, is important for us to understand this portion of scripture. So you need to be well caffeinated and awake today. Are you ready for this? Okay, all right. My hope is that at the end we'll be able to land the plane and apply it to ourselves and walk out of here with something to do with it. So here's this, this tension, this, this faith works tension, and it plays out this way. Paul writes this letter while, while in Corinth. He writes to the church in Rome, church he's never been to, a church he didn't plant. And in, these, in this letter to Rome, which we refer to as the Romans, uh, the book of Romans, he says these words. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Sounds a lot like what was decided in Acts 15. No, you don't need all these 613 laws. It's this faith thing. That's all great. We believe this. For by grace it is you are saved through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. We love that. Absolutely. Amen. Let's go on. Here's the issue. In James's earlier letter, he makes this statement. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now we say, well, okay, wait a second. Now it seems like we have these conflicting statements here of a very significant thing like salvation and life and faith. It's like there's two politicians that are arguing, well, my opponent says this, well, my opponent says this. And this is an issue that has caused a lot of confusion over the years. In fact, the section of scripture we're going to look at today in, in James chapter 2, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, it was this very thing that caused him to say James is like a secondary book in the Bible. He referred to it as a letter of straw. The reasons being, one, it was not evangelistic in nature. It only mentions Christ a couple of times. Two, it was not written by one of the original apostles. And three, this very issue in these words. In fact, he would go so far as to say what James writes in, in James chapter 2 does violence against Scripture. Wow, that's a strong statement. So how do you reconcile this? That's what I want us to do today. I want us to really dig in, think through this thing, reason together, and come up with, with the, uh, a reconciliation of these two. Here's one of the warnings I would say to you in any kind of time of Bible study or, or doctrine or theology. You have to always be very, very careful if you start basing a doctrine or a theology or a belief around an issue based on a verse. Especially if you don't look at that verse in context of who was it written to? What else is said around it? What was the issues that were being confronted? The other thing, the problem with just taking, you know, cherry picking a verse to build a belief is that we are called to take on what is referred to as the, the full preponderance of Scripture. How does it fit into the, to the whole of what God's Word says? One of the, um, one of the uh, theologians that I was reading about this, he said it this way that you don't have Paul and James, actually, if you understand this, you don't have them facing off against each other. What you have is two sides of the same coin. What you have them doing is standing back to back, confronting separate issues, confronting separate topics. For instance, Paul in the book of Romans, if you look at the context, Paul is writing 
to people who are Jewish and Gentiles. And in the early parts of Romans, especially in Romans chapter 3, he's making this statement that apart from Jesus, salvation is not available to anybody. For the Gentiles, they worship idols that has separated them from God. They've distanced themselves. They are in sin. They're bound by sin. They cannot have salvation. For the Jewish brothers, while they have circumcision and the law and the covenant, they don't keep it completely. They've been sinning, and they have separated themselves from God. So he says there's no difference, Jew or Gentile. We can't do this on our own. And in relationship to that, he's talking about how it is that we can have salvation. And he says it's not by what we do. It's by, what we, you know, by this grace. It's not by observing the law. James, on the other hand, as we've said in this series several times, he's not... He's not trying to convince anyone to be a follower of Jesus. He's writing to people who are already following Jesus, and they are Jewish in their background. These are brothers who understand. His interest and his desire is to help them grow deeper, to have a solid foundation, to mature in their faith. So the issue that he's confronting are these people who have this outward profession of faith, but there's no practical expression of what they profess. Maybe we can look at it this way, and this might be a really, a really bad illustration. But there's two conversations that Jesus has right at the end of his days here. One, while he's hanging on the cross, he has a conversation with a career criminal, and he simply says to him, you know, the, the cr- criminal says, you know, remember me when you come to your kingdom, and Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Done, end of conversation. That's it. You believe? Let's go. We're good. Later, however, Jesus is having a conversation with Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And three times he says, then here's what I need you to do. Feed my sheep. He gives him instructions. See, there are two different conversations with two different purposes. One, Jesus is just getting this guy into the kingdom. With, With Peter, he says, you're in the kingdom. This is what I want you to do because you're in the kingdom. Does that make sense? Okay, so you have these two different issues. All right, with that, let's jump in. James chapter 2, verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? In essence, what he's saying, you have faith, you believe, so what? Now what? You proclaim the right things, you believe the right things, but how is that being lived out? I believe that what we have here is not him saying it's faith plus works. What we're looking for is a faith that works, a faith that actually does something. And then he gives this example, and he sets it up as a hypothetical. He goes on, he says, suppose, which would would be like, let's just imagine if. And he uses this situation where he says, imagine if, suppose, hypothetically, if there was a man or a woman, and they didn't have clothes or daily food, and you just said to them, hey, I hope you stay warm and well-fed. God bless you. Have a good day. What's interesting, a little, little bit of, a, a, little bit of a, a rabbit trail here, is that this is a theme that is very important to James. As you remember before, he talks about widows and orphans, those who are in distress, those who are vulnerable, those who are poor. He also talks about the rich and the poor. He also talks about those who are in a high standing and those who are in a humble standing. And you see that this theme comes up four or five times in this, in this book alone, in this letter, of those who are poor, those who are, are destitute, those who are distressed, those who are, are vulnerable. And it's not just here. Back when, when Paul was talking about how he was extended the right hand of fellowship and they gave him his blessing, Paul says one other thing in Galatians. He says this, 
All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Even there, James is saying, listen, this is so important. And could it be that when he says, suppose, it's not a hypothetical situation he's talking about. Could it be that this theme is so near and dear to him because of his own life? Because maybe his parents, Joseph and Mary, were very, very poor. Because maybe, most likely, very few would disagree with this, that Joseph died early. He's never mentioned as being a part of the, of the time when Jesus was alive. Joseph would have died early. He gets it, this whole being caring for widows and orphans, because his mom was a widow, because he was a fatherless child. And he gets that. Maybe he's speaking from his own experience. Maybe he remembers when they were without food and daily, daily food and, and clothes. Maybe he remembers when his mom was a widow and struggling. Not only that, but if you remember, he's talking to the 12 tribes that have been scattered. Why were they scattered? Because of the persecution. That this maybe wasn't so hypothetical. That there were women in these churches, these gatherings, whose husbands had been killed in the persecution. There were children whose parents had been taken out. They were filled with widows and orphans. They were filled with people who had lost their lands, who had lost their homes, who had lost their occupation. They don't have clothes and daily bread. Maybe this isn't so hypothetical. And in addition to all of that, in the year 45 A.D., there was a massive famine in Judea. Maybe this isn't so hypothetical. Maybe it'd be like me saying, suppose there was a Seahawk game at 10 o'clock on a Sunday and some people did not go to church to watch a game. <laughs> hypothetically. And maybe what he's saying is this isn't so hypothetical. This is the life that we live. We are surrounded by people who are poor and destitute, people that don't have enough, people who are widows and orphans. But maybe it is a hypothetical, and maybe he's just painting a picture of this faith and deeds thing. That if you say all the right things, but you do nothing about it, there's nothing, nothing to it. If we were to look at it hypothetically, maybe for us, we could say it this way. Suppose one night you were driving along, and all of a sudden you heard a bang, and there was a thumping noise, and you pulled over, and you realized you had a flat tire. At that moment, you were so grateful because you had triple A. American Automobile Association. So you call them up, say, hi, I've got AAA, I've got a flat tire, could you send someone out? Someone is sent out, dispatched. Here comes some individual in a truck. They pull up behind you, say, hi, I'm from AAA, they sent me out. They said, you think you might have a flat tire? Yes. Just sit right there. Goes, takes a look, at it, comes back to the window, says, you're absolutely right, your tire is flat. Do not drive on this tire. It will ruin your rim, possibly mess up with your undercarriage. It would not be a good thing. Your tire is flat. I hope you have a spare, and I hope you know how to use a jack. You look very resourceful, and I believe in you. You're going to do great. Have a good evening. And then they drive away. <laughs> well, what good is that? That's not the Automobile Association of America. That, that's the Worthless Association of America. It does no good. And Paul's, or James says in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, it's dead. It's dead. Now, I think, and, and not everyone would agree with me on this, but I think when he says this faith here is dead in the context of things, I don't think he's talking about salvation here. I don't think he's talking about heaven and hell. I think he's talking about, you know, what evidence of your faith is there? He's talking about a, a dead versus a dynamic faith. That, that you can have faith, but what is the faith life that you're living because of your faith? What is the evidence of the things that you believe and the things that God's word says? 
As a pastor, I get the, uh, the great privilege of being involved with, with weddings to do uh, officiate wedding ceremonies. And in those ceremonies, there's this man and this woman, and they exchange vows, and they exchange rings, and they sign a, a marriage certificate and a license and all that, send that off, and it's registered, change a name. Now they can file jointly and save on taxes, all this stuff. And they are legally married. When that happens, they are in a legally binding contractual relationship. But that does not guarantee that the marriage will be alive, flourishing, and thriving, does it? Some of you know, and don't point, but some of you know from observing others that a marriage can be legally married, but it can be dead, or it can be dynamic. They're still married. You might be legally married for decades, but haven't taken a long walk holding hands, haven't listened to each other, haven't kissed, haven't embraced, haven't been intimate, haven't gone on dates, haven't had vacations, haven't cried together, prayed for each other, celebrated each other, called out the best in each other, haven't done it for years, your marriage is dead. You are married, but it's a dead marriage. And he says, listen, you have faith, but is it dynamic? Is it alive or is it dead? This whole concept of of the evidence of your faith is not something James came up with. It's not exclusive to him. He's not the outlier in scripture. When John the Baptist came, and he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of of, of heaven is, is at hand. He would also say this, not only just repent, you know, but he would say this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? That with your repentance, there ought to be some evidence Not just, okay, I'm gonna say the right things, I'm gonna pray the right prayer, but there's evidence, there's a a life action that happens because of that. When Peter writes his letter, uh, we call 1 Peter, and he says to these people, listen, at at one time you were not a people, but now you are a chosen people. At once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because of all that, he says this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Why? Because it's evidence of your faith, of your new life. Paul himself would say this. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. This is very important, Paul says. So that those who have trusted in God, that's the faith part, that's the belief part. Those that have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Why would he say that? Because it's not just our trusting here, but it's the evidence of that in how we live out our life. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount would come to them and say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who have nothing to offer, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And just a few verses later, he would say in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Why? Because of this kingdom of heaven that you've been invited into, there's a transformation and there's evidence of it in your life. And later in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, thus coming full circle to what John said, thus by their fruit, you will recognize them. That there's evidence of what we believe, of who we are in Christ in how we live out. So James says in verse 19, he says, you believe that there's one God. You believe there's one God, good. Now remember, his audience is Jewish. For them, one of their distinctives 
is that they were monotheistic. They were the only religion on the face of the planet that believed there was only one God. Everyone else had multiple gods and goddesses and all kinds of stuff. But he says, this is our distinctive. This is our Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. He says, you believe what? We, of course you believe it. That's great. You're believing. It's good theology. You've been taught this from your childhood. This is who we are. We believe this. Good. But is believing this enough? Because he says, hey, even the demons believe that. <laughs> and they're not a part of our religion. They shudder. Like, it's just having the right belief is not enough. So he goes on, he says, you foolish man, which in the original Greek can also be translated, well, duh. <laughs> says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? He says, let, let me build a case here for you. If you're not taking me at my word, let me build a case. And he goes to the founding father of their faith, their faith hero. And I don't know if he says, let's all sing together, Father Abraham had many sons, but he goes to Father Abraham. And he talks specifically out of Genesis chapter 22 when he points to the, the, probably the most revered, faithful servant of God in all of the Old Testament. And he says this, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? This was the greatest act of obedience, the greatest act of faith, the greatest act of trust, not only being a foreshadowing of what God would do with his son Jesus Christ, but this was humanly the greatest act of faith, obedience, and trust. And he's saying here, wasn't he considered righteous for what he did? Here again, I don't want to get so far down a theological rabbit hole that you're going, yeah, you're messing me up here, you're confusing me, but I think we need to be understanding this because some of you right now are saying, wait a second, was it because of what he did? Paul himself wrote in Romans chapter 4, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, something he did, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, it could look like James is saying Abraham did, and he was declared righteous, and Paul's saying Abraham believed and he was declared righteous. Again, it looks like a conflict. It looks like there, there's a, a, a disconnect here on a very important matter. So what do we do with that? Well, let's go back to the original. Let's go back to, to Genesis. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Say, okay, so Paul was right and James was wrong. Hold on there. Just wait a second. If you ever read Hebrews chapter 11, which is the chapter on the faithfulness of the people of God over the years, men and women who are just this God's hall of faith, Abraham gets more airplay in chapter 11 of Hebrews than any other character in scripture. And I think this is what James is pointing out. Abraham did believe God, but his belief translated into action. He believed God, and so he left Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a land where God says, I'll tell you when you get there. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know what it was. He didn't know when he would be there. It was his faith in God that caused him to leave and to go with God and to trust him. There was an action associated with his faith. If he says, yeah, God, I believe you, but I'm going to hang here in Ur, would that have been faith? And then later it says, he went into the promised land, and he lived in tents by faith. By faith, 
it led him to action to live in these tents. Later on, it says when his body was as good as dead, by faith, he believed that he would have a son. By faith, as a 90, 100-year-old man, he led him to action. Don't want to get into any of those details. And then he has Isaac, and Isaac is his only heir. And it's by faith, when God says, I want you to sacrifice your son, by faith, which led him to, to action, to being willing to do that. What James is saying is, don't you understand that this faith that he has translated into action all along the way? I mean, think about it. If he said, yes, I believe you, God, I believe you, God, never left Ur, never went to the promised land, never lived in the tent, never had relationships with an old Sarah, never had Isaac, never sacrificed Isaac, would he have faith? There's an action related to that. So James says in verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made, and this is key, complete by what he did. That he had this faith, he believed the right thing. But the evidence of that belief was in what he did. Last week, I, I told a story about my dad, which was, man, impacted, I mean, the amount of feedback I've gotten from you with that story. And, and I told you I didn't want to set my dad up as a saint. So I'm going to balance the scales out today and tell you another story about my dad. <laughs> God rest his soul. Um, so my dad uh, had a twin brother, Gerald and Daryl. Uh, they were born and raised in Oklahoma. And, uh, and their dad died early. I never met my grandpa on that side. But their dad left them um, in his death. There was a, a 22 rifle, a, a single-shot uh, bolt-action rifle that they would take out in the woods and shoot. They'd shoot targets. They would shoot birds. They'd plink, whatever. And one day, uh, my dad and his twin brother were out there shooting targets. And now listen, I'm going to stop here. What I'm about to say, I am not endorsing I'm not encouraging you to try at home. And if you're under 18, maybe close your ears. Um, I, I'm trying to make sure that there's no liability for me or Cornwall Church or anyone associated with this story. So my dad and his brother were out in the woods shooting, and as brothers often do, they got talking and kind of one up in each other. And the question came up, do you think I could shoot a tin can off of your head? And the answer, well, of course. Do you think I could shoot a tin can off of your head? He said, of course. So neither one of them wanting to back down said, okay. So my uncle, I'm not saying my dad had a high IQ. My uncle said, I'll go first. <laughs> and my dad put a tin can on his head and stood very still while my uncle Daryl drew a bead on that can and shot it off his head. My dad went and got the can, went over to my Uncle Daryl, and said, give me the gun. He said, nah. -uh. <laughs> now, I want to ask you, not who's the brightest, not who's the most intelligent, that, that goes without saying. Who had greater evidence of their faith, my dad or my Uncle Daryl? <laughs> okay, have you listened? Who had greater evidence of their faith? My dad, of course. He said, I'll put my money where my mouth is. I'll prove it. I'll show you. I trust you. I believe that you can do that. My uncle said he believed my dad could shoot it off, but he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm worried about you that you weren't really picking up on that. <laughs> Some of you are just looking for your brother's phone number. Hey, I got an idea. <laughs> it was the action that proved his faith, and that's what he's saying. He goes on and he says this. 
and the scripture was fulfilled it was completed and fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend why because what he believed he lived he did this there was evidence for it it wasn't just an outward proclamation there was a practical expression of what he believed and so he comes to this conclusion he says you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith and here's the key word alone he's not justified by faith alone now what's interesting as i was reading and studying this I came across uh, one author, and, and I'm, I'm still chewing on this one. I, I'm, not, I'm just saying, I, I read this, and I thought, boy, that's kind of interesting. That's an interesting thought. I'm not sure where I land on that, but I'm going to give it to you guys so you can wrestle with it as well. But he came to this conclusion, this whole thing of the, the faith and works deal, this author. He said, the faith part has us justified before God with a declared righteousness. It's, it's what we refer to as imputed righteousness, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's not our righteousness. It's, it's the righteousness of Christ that's on us. And that is by faith. No question with that. But this author went on to say, but our works justify us before men. And it's this righteousness that's demonstrated. It's like showing this is what I believe. And I believe it enough to put my money where my mouth is, to put my feet into action with my beliefs and how I live my life. Now, after this, we won't go into this, but, but he gives another biblical example of Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. And what I find interesting is that James pulls on these polar opposite examples from the Old Testament. Abraham, the friend of God, the founder of their faith, the father of Judaism. Rahab, the pagan prostitute. I and mean, these guys are about as polar opposite as you can get. And he says, even Rahab, it wasn't just, yeah, I believe the right things. It's how she lived. It was her actions. So I think as you begin to understand this whole thing, you begin to see that, that Paul and James are not at odds with each other. They actually believe and agree with each other, and they're saying the same thing, but they're confronting different issues. So some of you might say, okay, but what about this one? Ephesians 2 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What do you do with that, Pastor Bob? Two things. First of all, you rejoice and say, hallelujah. Man, am I, that is the good news. Because there's not one of us that would ever be worthy enough to have this. This is a great thing. You fall down in gratitude and worship God and praise him and sing praises to his name forever. That's the first thing you do with it. The second thing you do is keep reading. Because verse 10 says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see what he's saying? We are not saved by our works. We are saved for good works. That it's not what we do that changes us, that causes us to be brought into the family of God, but because we're brought into this kingdom, that is a new creation and with a new purpose for the purpose of doing good works, of doing the right thing. Uh, some of you have heard of, of John Calvin. John Calvin uh, was a, a theologian, uh, Calvinism, uh, Reformed theology. He was from Switzerland. His teachings, his ideas made its way into Scotland, and it began the, the Presbyterian Church. His teachings made its way into the Netherlands, and thus became the Dutch Reformed Church, eventually became the Reformed Church of America, and then there was a splinter group of the, the CRC, and John Calvin is single-handedly responsible for the city of Linden. So... <laughs> 
John Calvin summed it up this way. And this is so profound. He said this. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Faith alone justifies, but that kind of faith is never alone. Years later, uh, John Owens, a Puritan, said basically the same thing. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. I don't know if you've ever read much of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I haven't. There's no pictures in his books. A deep, deep thinker. But Bonhoeffer is famous for this quote that says, only the believing obey and only the obedient believe. Now, have you been with me so far today? Okay. You really want to go deep now? Okay, you're going to have to think hard about this one. Bonhoeffer expounds on that little phrase when he says this. Only those who believe obey. That's part of his little quote. Only those who believe obey is what we say to that part of a believer's soul which obeys. And only those who obey believe is what we say to that part of the soul of the obedient which believes. If the first half of the proposition stands alone, the believer is exposed to the danger of cheap grace, which is another word for damnation. If the second half stands alone, the believer is exposed to the danger of salvation through works, which is another word for damnation. See, it's not an either or. It's a both and. Now, James takes his audience back to the opening pages of Scripture to give one more little shout out, little kind of a, a, a passing glance at something that they were all aware of. In the opening pages of Scripture, in the creation account, Scripture says this in Genesis. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. We, we've all heard that story. He reaches down, he forms this little man. He has this little, this little inanimate corpse that he's created, this little man called Adam. At that point, he has a, a man. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Something happened. That this little corpse becomes animated when there's breath breathed into it. And they understood all that. And I think James gives kind of a... a a little shout out to that at the end of this whole passage when he says this as the body without the spirit the word pneuma can also mean wind can also mean breath as the body kind of like Genesis account as the body without the spirit without the pneuma without the breath is dead so faith without deeds is dead just like there's this corpse that's there until there's the breath that animates it it's dead he says, and your faith is there, but works is the life breath of your faith. It's what brings it alive. It's what makes it dynamic. It's what changes everything. It's what causes it to flourish and to thrive. And I think what we come down to this whole thing is that these faith and these works, this whole tension, faith and works are inseparable. They're inseparable. They go together. They're like two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate them. Now, some of you are saying, well, I don't know what he said for the last 30-some minutes, but it looks like he had fun with it. <laughs> okay, let me try to bring all this down to us. Remember that James is writing this book not to a church, but to followers of Jesus. And it's not just saying, well, this church needs to change this. He's saying, this applies to all of you. And what he's saying, remember he appealed, we talked about this last week, he appeals to the glory, you believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. 
And because of your belief in him, you've been forgiven, you've been loved, you've been brought in, you've been transformed, you are part of this kingdom. And because you're a part of this kingdom of Jesus, it's not just what you think and what you believe, though that's important. It's what you do with what you think and what you believe. You're different now. You're a new way of operating now, a new way of interacting, a new way of living this life. No longer are you filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit. No longer do you have no, no uh, regard for the poor. No longer is it all about you and your greed and what you can get. He says, now you've been transformed and you follow the life of Jesus. Now it's about bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Now it's about restoring God's shalom in your own little area. It's about being a person of compassion, of mercy, of grace, of sacrifice, of generosity, of love. It's about the word of God and what you believe and who you are transforming you so that this world gets transformed. Do not merely listen to the words and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So maybe a good exercise for each one of us this week is to spend some time in honesty with ourselves and invite the Holy Spirit to whisper truth to us no matter how hard it is to hear and to listen and ask, where is it in my life that there's evidence played out by what I believe? What is it that I believe, what I've heard, God's word, what has transformed and changed me, that is translated into action in how I live my life. And then when you hear that, don't deceive yourself and say, that's good enough. Do what he says.